You're listening to Answering Difficult Questions Biblically, a Sunday school series taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Okay, so we got uh, three questions on the docket today. Hopefully we'll get to all three of them. The first one is this. Why are there two different creation accounts? Okay, and this question was asked by someone who completely knows the truth of God's Word. It's not questioning whether the Bible um, is trying to conflict one creation account with something different. It's just kind of, how do we explain to someone um, why Genesis chapter 1 seems to be an account of creation, but then you get into Genesis chapter 2, and it feels like you're getting the same part of the same account again, but said very differently. And so what I want to do before we get into answering that question specifically is talk about how to properly understand Scripture as a whole, hermeneutics, right? How do we, how do we understand the Bible properly? And we should recognize that the, the writers of Scripture, um, especially when we get into narrative, their primary goal is not chronological order. And, and oftentimes when we get into the Bible, just because of the way the Western mind is taught to think, it's everything is scientific, everything is historical, everything should be in, in order exactly as it happened. And the primary purpose for which the Word of God was written was theological purposes, right? It was written to, to teach us something about who God is and, and how He acted and, and how He acts so that we can understand where we came from, what we're here for. Um, who created us, and how we are to live. And so there are times you read stories and you might find that they're light on details that you wish you knew and then heavy on details that really don't seem that important. And part of that is because the, the author has a purpose. He has an intention. And so one of the most important keys to good hermeneutics is learning to understand the author's intention. That's really important. When you go to the Bible, your first question is never, what does this mean to me? Okay? And that's what we want to do, right? That's what I think some of our emotional side, we go to Scripture and it's like, oh, how does this make me feel? Or what does this mean to me in my life right now? That's the first question we often come to the Bible with. That's not the right question. The right question is, what did the author intend to say? What did the author intend to communicate to his original original audience? And then how do we understand that today? And how do we apply it properly to our lives today? So we do get to application. We must get to application in our lives. But it's not the first place we go. So the, author, the author's intention is really important, and, and part of what will help you, especially when you're reading the epistles, is trying to follow what the argument is, right? What is the author trying to say? What is Paul saying when he writes? What is, why is he writing to 1 Corinthians? What's the purpose of it? What is he trying to communicate to them? What's the problem he sees that he's trying to correct? And when you start to like try and make those logical links, then when you get to a more difficult passage, it's, it's easier to, to frame that within the whole context and make better sense of it. It's sometimes more difficult when we get to narrative because you've got a story and the author isn't necessarily making the argument outright and center. It's more something that they're telling the story to make a point, but you don't, they don't necessarily 
frame the story with, here's a, sto- a point that I'm trying to make, and here's a story to tell you what it is. Um, often they'll just tell the story, and you're supposed to figure out what the point is. And so, despite the fact that it might be a little bit more hidden in narrative, it doesn't mean we don't try and figure out what it is, what's the purpose. And, and, and one of the ways, we, we have different clues that will help us. Um, one of the clues that you can look for when you're looking at biblical narrative, so the book of Genesis, much of the Old Testament, is repetition, right? There's often repetition in stories. And when you see the same words or the same phrases over and over again, it tells you maybe that's, that's pointing towards something. Maybe there's a reason for that. If there's an emphasis placed on something in particular, that might be evidence that the, the author is pointing toward that thing over and over again. Um, and, and so if we were to take that and, and look at the story of creation in Genesis chapter 1, I know it's a story you've read many times, you've heard many times, but one of the things that's interesting to note is when we look at Genesis chapter 1 and we look for repetition, the first thing that jumps out at me is how often the word God is used. I mean, part of the author's intention must be to communicate that God was doing something, that God was very involved, right? Because he begins in, in chapter 1 with God created, verse 1, God created. Verse 2, the Spirit of God moved. Verse 3, God said, let there be light. Verse 4, God saw. Verse five, God, verse 4, also God divided. Um, verse 5, God called. And you go through the entire chapter and you're going to find God did this, God did this, God did this. So certainly, if we're looking at, for the narrator's intention in Genesis chapter 1, what was Moses trying to communicate? It was very much that God was doing something. It's interesting, too, that when we look at um, those Genesis 1 and the first narration account, um, we often see that God created or God made. But one thing that's interesting about that is that there are two different words used for created and made. Okay, created is, is translated from the word asa, which is formed or molded or put together, and it's from the word bara, which is created like ex nihilo, from, out of nothing. When something is created, something that only God can do. Only God can take nothing and create something. And so we, we've got this idea that God was very active and this idea that he both created things from nothing, spoke them into existence, and that he took things that he had already created and then he formed them into something distinct, something different. Another thing we find is an emphasis in Genesis 1 on the timeline. We look at the the whole thing. We see that God called the light day, the darkness he called night. So he's establishing the the idea of a daytime and a nighttime. And then he continually says things like, so the evening and the morning were the first day. So the evening and the morning were the second day. So the evening and the morning were the third day. So he's emphasizing that over and over again that It is happening in a certain period of time. And I think that's important because I think that he doesn't have to do that, right? He could very easily just be like, there were seven days, the first day did this, then this, then this, then this, and then the seven days ended. But instead, he makes a point like the evening and then the morning were the first day and the second day. And so he's he's drawing your attention to the fact that this is happening in a period of time. Then we look at the book of Exodus and we find out that in that in the same period of time, because God did it this way, that's why the Sabbath works the way the Sabbath will work. 
And so the, the timeline seems like it's important, it's emphasized. Uh, another thing we find that is emphasized in Genesis 1 is the amount of time that he spends talking about the creation of man. That we've got him creating all of these things, and then them kind of um, creating after or giving birth after their kind. But then when he gets to Genesis chapter 26, it seems to slow down a lot. It's almost like we've, we've, we've been bang, bang, this happened this day, this happened this day, this happened this day, this happened. We get to the sixth day, and it's like, okay, I want to tell you what happened on the sixth day, and I, I want to give you some more detail. And that's because it, it feels like, if you're, if you're following the thought process of the author, what happens the sixth day is of primary importance. Okay? We really need to understand what happened that day. And that's where he establishes the fact that man, mankind, is created uniquely, not the same way as everybody else. There's, there's a different process. There's a different thing that happens. There's a relationship between God and mankind that is unique, that isn't present with any of the rest of creation. There's, a different, there's actually a unique relationship between um, mankind and his spouse, his wife that is unique to creation, that, that it's not really described anywhere else. And so we, we get this idea that the author, whatever he's trying to communicate, is God was making things in all this order, and then he got to day six, and what happened on day six was really important. Another thing that we find emphasized in, or at least repeated, in the, the first creation account is that everything was made, was made good. It's made good. Verse 4, verse 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, 30. All the things were made good. Verse 30, everything when he saw, he looked over all of creation, it was made very good. So, those are some of the clues. When we look at Genesis chapter 1, what do we think the author is then trying to communicate? Because his, his, his primary purpose isn't a historical, uh, boring, logical explanation of events. He's not just telling us history. He's trying to help us understand something about the world that we live in. And the things that I think he's helping us understand is that, A, God made it. God was responsible. God was involved. This was not something that God just set into motion and then, then let it happen, but God was stepping in at every point, creating, making, seeing what had happened, calling it good. But he was so involved in the whole process. The other thing, it seems like it was, he was making this in, his, in the way that it had a, a kind of a primary goal. And in, in day six, we start to see that goal. So yes, he was just making things. We didn't really understand why, but we get to day six. And now we see this unique relationship established between God and mankind. And, and everything before has been created in the, it would give birth, it would create after its own kind but now God makes man in his image, after, kind of after his kind. That's the idea, right? And so there's something unique that happens there. So he's establishing God's creation and God's unique relationship with mankind and that all of it, all that he had made, was very good. That's what we're supposed to walk away from Genesis 1 with, okay? We get to Genesis chapter 2, and you say, well, how come Genesis chapter 2 seems to have an entirely different creation account? In Genesis 2, verse 4, it says, This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. To me, that sounds like a summary statement. So he's, he's either 
just summarizing what had just happened or what was about what he was about to record in that day. And then verse 8 says, The Lord planted the garden eastward in the garden, and there he put it, and the man he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree to grow that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he's already told us that he created certain things, and the trees were created and all these things. He already told us that he created man, but now he's saying he's placing man in this garden, and he's creating a tree that is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Just understand that when we get to Genesis chapter 8, in our minds, we think Genesis 1 is concluded, and so now we're moving on to the next week. And Genesis 2 starts week 2, and we're going to find out what's happening here. But that's not what the author said he was doing, and I don't think that's the author's intention for us to go. I think what he's doing here is he's saying, I did this here, now in in Genesis 2, I'm going to zoom in on a particular part of this text that's really important for you to understand, so that we can not not have a better uh, history historical view of the events, but so that we can have a better uh, theological understanding of the purpose of it all. So in 2, he says in verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to keep him to tend it. This, all of this, I believe, is happening in, in the context of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. All of this is happening in that timeline. We're just getting a lot more detail in that timeline. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man shall be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each of them, called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Do you see kind of what he's doing? Is he's, he's like layering it. He's, talk, he's using some of the same phrase over and over. And, and that he did this and he saw that there was, he made each one something that was suitable to them. And for everyone, there was something suitable to them. And they gave birth after their kind. And, and then it's kind of like drawing this, like, oh no, we get to Adam and there's nothing. What's like, so you're starting to see the author's intention, right? He's starting to like build this case of, Everything has something that's suitable. Everything has a mate. And then Adam doesn't. And he names everything else, but when Adam names it, he sees everything come in pairs, but he doesn't have a pair. And so in verse 21, or the end of verse 22, but for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. Verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. He slept, he took one of his ribs, he closed up the flesh in its place, Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they are both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And so we look to this text to find out what the author is trying to convey. And we find, one, he creates this new thing in the midst of the garden, and he gives the first rule, right? There's this tree of knowledge of good and evil, and there's a punishment if you eat from it. This is new. So there's something, the author's drawing our attention to this new detail that wasn't there before. And he's also 
helping us to, to fill out in our minds the relationship he's already established between a man and his wife, that they would become one flesh. And, and so now we get a lot of detail of how that happened. The fact that he was alone, the fact that he needed a helper, the fact that there, there should be someone who is suitable for him. And ultimately, woman is taking, taken from the man. And this is God's, God's plan, right? And so, so in chapter 2, he's um, filling out the unique relationship that we have with God and then the boundaries of that relationship in the tree of knowledge. And he's filling out the details of the unique relationship that we have with our wives, with husband and wife. Right? So remember in chapter 1, he, drew, he, he started giving us a little more detail about this uniqueness. So we start to realize that maybe all of creation had something to do with these relationships. And then in chapter 2, we get a lot more detail about those two relationships and the boundaries that God places around them. Okay? So, then we get into chapter 3, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but recognize that in chapter 3, it's, it's again, not just a narrator trying to say, you know, day one or week, week one, week two, week three, we fell, right? It's, it's him trying to establish, so when we think of who we are and where we came from, it is God made, it was good. He established his relationships, they were good, okay? They, they, they fit together, they, it was perfect, we were naked and unashamed, but then step three we fell. We chose to eat. We chose to break the one rule, the one law that was in place in the universe. Um, we chose to break it. And so that, was, that caused a curse on mankind. So that when we sit in the world that we live in today, we can understand why we're here, right? Why is the world a mess right now? Well, I think, I mean, if, if you're not a believer in Christ and you don't follow the Old Testament, you don't believe the Old Testament, then I think there's a little bit of a, yeah, it's, it's strange that, that human beings who should be so smart and are now so educated and have all of this technology that we can't figure out how to take care of each other and how to not fight about foolish things and, and how to solve, cure diseases and solve world hunger and, and all of these issues that at this point, this point in humanity, we should be able to sort out. Um, but as a believer, we come to the problem, the, the world we live in, and we say, no, this makes complete sense. This is exactly what we should expect, this chaos for mankind, because God created all these good things, but then the curse came, and, and our nature was fallen, and so we are sinful um, by nature and by choice, and, and human beings will always choose to fight, will always choose to be proud, will always choose to rebel against the God that created them, will never recognize him as God as, as they ought to. And so... So much of, of the world we live in today it, it is made sense by our understanding of these first three chapters. And it's not just written so you get a historical um, perspective. It's written so theologically and anthropo anthropologically you can fill out who God is and who we are and what's the purpose of it all. Right? Okay. Okay, good. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about what you've just heard, or are interested in the ministry of Maple City, please visit our website at maplecitybaptistchurch.com.